scripture passage for today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire in the night. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a seed in our hearts of the soil. Prepare the soil, plant the seed of your word so that it may germinate and grow and bear fruit for our lives, for our neighborhoods, and the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, thinking about this particular scripture, I'm thinking and I've thought about and, and I read about a number of different people this week. I'm thinking of the undocumented farm worker who is often taken advantage of, often cheated, sometimes locked up, maybe deported. When that person hears this story, uh, he identifies with the ram caught in the weeds. <clears throat> I'm thinking of a young father, a first son, barely two months old, who feels like he's been carrying his son every day since he was born. 
then one day at church, it's an evening service, and there's a little table in the corner. He lifts up his young, weightless son, and for two seconds sets his son on that table and offers a prayer, devoting his son to the Lord. He identifies with Abraham. I'm thinking of a young woman who's full of talent, good grades, lots of opportunities ahead of her, the world is her oyster, and then something tragic happens. Everything comes to a halt when she is assaulted, and then she can't even leave her house. She can't move forward in life. She feels like Isaac bound to that altar. I'm thinking about a small business owner who has always, always played by the rules, been fair to employees, always paid the vendors on time, could have gotten a lot further, a lot faster, had he cheated, cut some corners, but never did it. Meanwhile, he's taken over by some big box store and has to shut down and go out of business. He identifies with the one who decides to do the faithful thing instead of the thing he wants to do. And finally, I'm thinking of the, the woman who grows up in church. As a teenager, she hears this story in church, preached, and she is appalled. She's aghast. She can't believe a bunch of people would sit around and listen to something like this and sort of nod their heads and say, my, what a wonderful example of faith, when when she hears it, she hears terror. How could someone ever even consider something like what Abraham considers? How is anybody okay with this? Why are we still listening to this book, this awful, patriarchal, atrocious book? Is anybody listening to this at all? I'm thinking of all these people this morning. Um... When I visited Israel, I went to a place called the Israel Museum, and there is something called the, uh, the, the oh, it's the, it's, the, um, it's the Museum for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, you get a sense of how old this book is that we're all sitting around and listening to. You get a sense that, you know, the, everyone's excited about a copy of the scriptures that's 2,000 years old, and that's after it was written. It's already 2,000 years old, and then 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, we're celebrating it. When there's all these other texts in the Israel Museum, there's cuneiform, there's texts of Assyria, why aren't we all sitting around those? And yet a story that we think happened roughly 4,000 years ago, here we are in Fort Collins, Colorado, opening up the book, listening to it, devoting our morning, gathering around this story. One of the reasons we are, I think, is because of the responses of the people I mentioned. It's because the scripture itself invites all of those responses, every one of them, that I think we're still here. This is a story that has been worn smooth by centuries of reflection and interpretation, and yet it remains hard as a diamond, in a way impenetrable. And what I mean by that is that Genesis 22's power is that it doesn't just say what it says. 
It withholds. Think about all that it doesn't say. Think about what is not mentioned in this story. Did you wonder what Abraham was thinking? We're not told. We get none of his internal thoughts. Where's Sarah in all this? We're not told. What's Isaac thinking? We don't know. We do get some information, and the, and the some information that we get makes it even harder, makes it even more heartbreaking. We get this long, silent journey to the mountain between a father and a son. We get a conversation between the father and the boy with no clear answer to Isaac's question, is Abraham deceiving him? Or is Abraham saying all that he knows? And then the most heartbreaking sentence for me of all, after their conversation, and the two of them walk on together. One commentator called that the most poignant silence in all of literature. Three times Abraham is called, Abraham, Abraham, or my father. He's called once by God, he's called once by Isaac, and then another time by God. And every time he answers, here I am. The first time is an impossible command. The second time is an impossible question from Isaac. And then the third time is when his hand is raised in the air with the knife in it, about to do what he's been commanded to do. And he's called again. And he must have thought in that moment, who knows? But he must have thought, I can't handle any more impossible commands. Like, what could be more impossible than this? And then it's something he doesn't expect. It's a substitute. There's one interpretation that I, I do not support of this passage, which is the one that dismisses the story completely. And the reason I don't support that is because you all will forget what I say, and this story will live on, long after all of us. This is not easy to dismiss this passage. As much as we struggle with it, and we should struggle with this scripture, it will not go away. Um, famously, Soren Kierkegaard had a critique of this passage. And he was right to critique it, but he's not critiquing the passage as much as he's critiquing us, or critiquing 19th century Danish, Danish Protestantism. Because in 19th century Danish Protestantism, for them, God was part of the machinery of the universe. You know, for them, they were, they were constructing their well-being. They, were, they imagined religion was just part of the way you, you make a world of well-being. And, and God just sort of fit into the project of yourself. And Kierkegaard is saying, if God fits into the project of you having a happier, healthier, better life, how does this story fit into that? Because if anyone you knew was in this situation, you would condemn them instantly. As a pastor, if someone said they heard God say that they were supposed to sacrifice their child, I would say, no, he didn't. Not a question. Not even a question, I would say, absolutely not. And so Kierkegaard is saying, maybe something else is going on here than just God being part of the project of your own well-being. And I agree with that. The reason we should be troubled with this passage is much worse than we think. 
The reason we ought to be troubled by this passage is that it is is not because of, um, not, frankly, not because of child sacrifice, and 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 that's because again, this is four thousand years old, and it may be hard to believe, but times have changed uh, four thousand years. And I will say one of the reasons times have changed is because of the scriptures and because of um, God speaking into the world. But back then, child sacrifice really was part of a culture. It's unthinkable now. But back then, children just were not valuable. It was adults who were valuable. It was adults who mattered, and kids were there to support adults. And, I mean, they even 2,000 years ago, there was a practice of, you know, if you had too many kids, you just left some at the dump. Thankfully, we don't live in a society like that. Thankfully, we don't live in a world like that anymore. But what we must understand is that there was no cultural idea around child sacrifice that that's inappropriate. Nothing like that at all. It was inappropriate in the Bible, but purely because of this, because God commanded against it. What is most troubling, I think, about this passage is that Abraham is led to a moment of complete God-forsakenness. When the Lord tests Abraham, he's testing him to forsake everything, including God and God's promises. Abraham is led to believe that he was supposed to have a whole new future in God. He had um, given up everything. He'd given up his family, he'd given up his land, he'd given up absolutely everything to go where God told him to go. And all of that, all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his relationship with God was all embodied in one person. It was embodied in Isaac. He had nothing really else to go on. He didn't have, you know, thousands of kids. He didn't have a blessed nation. He was still a wandering nomad in the desert, but he had Isaac. And now he was being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was the one thing Abraham had to show for God's love, his one hope, and now it was going away. In Abraham's case, it was just a test. We know it was a test. Um, it says in the passage it was just a test. And maybe, at least one of the ways we could take this, maybe if he hadn't passed the test, maybe life would have been worse. Maybe life would have been worse for Isaac because he would have turned Isaac into an idol. And as we all know, when kids can't be just kids, when they become a fulfillment of their parents' hopes and dreams, you ruin both the kid's life and the parent's life. And so maybe this test was the only way to create a healthy relationship between Abraham and Isaac. We don't know for sure. But I don't think the test is actually the point of this particular passage when we read it in the whole of Scripture. I like to think of Genesis 22 as the introduction to a theme in music. I'm no music buff, um, but what I understand, and maybe some of you could help me with this, is that in classical music, there's something called a theme. Like, um, like in um, Beethoven's Fifth, you know the theme of Beethoven's Fifth? Anybody know it? It's really easy. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Is that right? I think that's the theme. Yeah. So it introduces it, the very first notes. Dun, 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 dun. And, then, and then it comes back to that. But every time it comes back to it, it changes a little bit. 
And by the end of Beethoven's fifth, dun 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 dun, has turned into something else. In a way, it's become resolved, in a, in a surprising way that we could never have imagined. Genesis 22 does the exact same thing. Genesis 22 introduces a theme that gets resolved in a surprising way, a way we never could have imagined. What is the theme? The theme is this. The world is messed up. The world needs to be transformed. There are problems in the world, deep problems. People, innocent people are hurt, wounded, killed all the time. How can God transform this world? Well, one option is to clear the slate. So that was, that was the option presented with Noah earlier in, in this book, in Genesis. Just wipe everybody out except for like a good guy and his kids. And let's see if that works. And it didn't work. Not only did it not work, but God said, I'm never going to try that again. I promise. And so he puts a bow in the sky. Even this... Even this gives us a little bit of the theme, because what is a bow? Bow and arrow, right? All right, so he puts the bow in the sky. All right, which way is the bow pointing? Which way is the arrow going to fly? It's going to go up. That's right. So even now, we have a little bit of a, a hint of the theme. And then Genesis 22 gives us a strong theme that somehow, through death through destruction, somehow the world can be transformed. It won't be Isaac's. It won't be Isaac's. The ram comes along, uh, caught in the thicket, and it won't be Isaac's death that brings about the transformation of the world. The theme is not really fully developed until we meet Jesus. And Jesus takes up the theme perfectly. Like Abraham, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, and he comes through. He, he takes care of, he, he um, passes all the tests. Jesus, like Isaac, is told to carry the wood for his own execution, and he carries the wood. And Jesus' head is caught in a thicket of thorns, just like the rain. And so Jesus takes all the themes, every version of the theme, and he embodies it in himself. And in Jesus, the theme is complete. And it is complete in this sentence. Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection is not a way out of the theme, not like Isaac. It's different than Isaac getting off the pile because somebody else got on there. It's not a switch. Jesus really was killed. It was worse than Genesis 2. But it is also somehow because Jesus is killed. It is because Jesus is cut short in his, message, mess, in his mission to love the world. It is because Jesus is not rescued at the last minute, but instead really dies. That he is raised from the dead and then is able to transform the world. I do think that Abraham thought that God was part of the machinery of his life and that God was providing Isaac to make Abraham happy and whole and have well-being and that, and that God is just part of like a pillar, a pillar of his existence. 
But the theme shows us that God's ways are not comprehensible to us. God is not somebody who is there to prop up what we think life is supposed to be like. God's ways are strange, they're mysterious, and because of that, we are still here in Fort Collins, Colorado, gathering around this very, very strange story. This is not a God who is going to support our projects, our fulfillment. This is not a God that commands the possible. This is a God that commands of all of us the impossible. And so to those people I mentioned earlier, this is a God who, who asks us to bring children into a world, in, in a world that is deeply cruel and is going to hurt our kids. That is the impossible thing that God asks us to do. God also asks us another impossible thing, to not retaliate against our enemies. God asks us to do the right thing, even though we live in a world where cheaters are the ones who get ahead. And God asks us to not live in perfect security, to accept some level of vulnerability. All these things are impossible. All these things are impossible to accept, and it's inappropriate of a God to do so, and yet he does. And in the midst of all of this, we will never, ever, ever fully understand God. That's because this is also a God that brings life and meaning out of death and chaos. That makes the possible out of the impossible. When the life we construct comes crashing down, when everything we understood and made sense no longer makes sense anymore, this is a God who gives us new life and meaning as a gift. And so like Abraham, at the end of this story, we too can praise God because he did not spare his son, his only son, the one he loved, that we might have life. Amen. Father, we are grateful for the scripture. And Lord, even if we cannot comprehend it, may it comprehend us. May we meet you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.